Good morning again. wanted to just give you a brief uh, introduction to what we're talking about today. We, uh, this past summer, our denomination has a, an annual meeting um, there where they get all the pastors and elders together at one church, and you know, there's a lot of harumphing and yaying and neighing and all that sort of fun stuff. And one of the speakers at that convention was a guy named Mark Middleberg. And one of our elders uh, was listening to Mark and picked up one of Mark's books called The, the Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And it goes over, they did a national survey of questions that make Christians uncomfortable. And we've, we've taken up things like the existence of God, we've taken up the reliability of the Bible. Uh, we've talked about, um, oh, what was that light topic we did last week? Suffering, right? And we've talked about each of these subjects, and now we come to week six, and this, this is the topic that ranked sixth in the survey that Christians hoped no one would ask them about, and it's the subject of abortion. And the question is phrased as you see it on the screen, you know, why is abortion such a line in the sand for Christians? Why is this such a big deal? And why can't I, as a woman, have the right to do what I want with my own body? Which is a good question. And, and this is a huge issue in our culture, if you are not already aware of this. Um, and I want to give a couple of... Uh, parameters for what I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, many of you have known me for a long time. Some of you have not known me for very long. Um, and I, I tend to like, when we particularly are taking up a controversial subject, to give a very balanced, uh, two-sided, you know, show both sides of the issue. In fact, one time I was preaching on this same subject, and I was so balanced, I really upset quite a few people. And I probably today will upset quite a few people. Right? There's no way to do this without upsetting someone. Um, and that doesn't bother me. I'm not, I'm not upset by the fact that I'm upsetting you. Right? It's, all, it's all good. Um, but what I want to do today is try to answer this question, which is, why is it such a line in the sand for Christians? So I'm not, we'll say a couple of things about the complexity of the nature of this debate. But this is not an attempt to try to give a really uh, two-sided entrance into the full discussion of this issue. It's simply an attempt to lay out the the biblical and scientific case as to why this is so important to so many Christians. So we will uh, start there. And for that purpose, I want to read to you a few scripture passages. And we're just going to, we're going to, blaze through several different passages, and then we'll kind of collect our thoughts on all those things in just a minute. So we'll begin where I started with the kids in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then, of course, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder one of the Ten Commandments. Then a passage from Psalms, the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you, 
formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Then in Luke 1, 41 through 44, and I'll just give you a little bit of background on this story. Mary uh, is only a few weeks pregnant with Jesus. So he is in utero. She goes to visit her cousin, um, aunt, cousin, you know, they're all related. And uh, her cousin is about, I think, six months pregnant at the time Mary shows up, if I recall correctly. And we're going to read about their encounter and how it relates to their babies. So when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Then from Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, we hear these words, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So, in late in the year 2000, not too late in the year, but somewhere mid-year, um, Kathy, you know, brings, brings out the pregnancy test, and it's got the two lines on it, right? And this one was legitimate, by the way, for those of you who know about another incident. Um, we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> would not help, no. Um, you know, leaves the pregnancy test there, and I see it, and, and we realize, you know, wow, this we're going to have another one. And so we make the doctor's appointment. We go into the doctor's appointment, and the, the woman who was Kathy's OB um, does a, an ultrasound, and she had made her little calculation of how old the baby must be. And so she does the little ultrasound and looks at us like she'd just seen a ghost. And she says, I'm sorry to tell you this, you've miscarried. And um, Kathy and I kind of looked at each other. There had been no signs of miscarriage, no nothing, no indications at all. Uh, in terms of those natural indications that a woman would have. And so it was a little bit of a curveball. And we asked a couple of clarifying questions, and the doctor answered, and I said, you know, how sure are you that 
this is a miscarriage? And she said, 100%. Annie, can you just stand up for a second and wave? That's the 100% right there. Thank you. Sorry to do that to you. Um, And turns out she was 100% wrong. And fortunately, my wife had enough of that maternal instinct in her to uh, ask for a second opinion, which is not an easy thing to do when you're standing in the room with a medical expert, right, who's 100% sure. 100% is kind of hard to argue with. And uh, so we had, you know, we went across. She, she, gave, she kind of begrudgingly gave us a... a little prescription for a second opinion. She wasn't real happy about it. Um, And she said, and as we left her office, I have you, I've talked to the front desk, and I have you scheduled for a DNC on Tuesday. And I think this was a Friday. And, uh, you know, and it was just a really creepy day. And I think, did we go that same day over to to the hospital where they allegedly have a better machine and we sit down with the ultrasound tech, and he goes, you see that little fluttering on the screen right there? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, that's, that's your baby. That's the heartbeat. We're like, wow. And at that point, how do you think I'm feeling? Irate, right? I'm just like welling up with anger and, you know, disbelief and whatever, a lot of ugly, terrible, non, not very Christian feelings are kind of swirling around within me. Um, and I tell you, I tell you that for a couple of reasons, um, but I think most of all, just to sort of frame this issue, this is a very emotionally charged issue. These these questions of of life and pregnancy and a woman's womb and her privacy and the sanctity of that life, etc., these are, this is a big deal and it's charged with all of our own personal feelings and experiences and, um, you know, if, if I was going through all that emotion at a healthy baby, I can't imagine what a couple goes through when they lose that healthy baby for whatever reason. Even if it was their intention to end the pregnancy, there still is an emotionally charged reality that comes in the wake of that. These are, these are big issues. This is big stuff. And so... I want to sort of summarize those scriptures that we just read through and give us kind of a, a biblical case, if you will, for how we frame this issue biblically. Um, it, it, I realize, you know, I, I have a seventh grader in the room who I just introduced you to a little while ago. Uh, and I think in a conversation not too long ago, uh, we used the word abortion, and she had no clue what it meant, right? Uh, 
So I'm just going to define the term really quick. An abortion is the, the ending of a pregnancy before the baby is born that results in the death of the baby that was in the mommy's tummy. Okay, so if anybody doesn't know what that was, there's just a simple, quick definition. Um, and let's take a look at what these scriptures teach us about this question. First of all, as we saw in Genesis, all human beings are created in the image of God. This is what gives us what we call human dignity. It's actually what gives us what we call human rights. It means that a a human life has value as a reflective being of the nature of God. And so every human life bears the image of God, and that's that's a key starting point. This is where this conversation begins, if you will, that we're all created in the image of God. Um, you know, obviously from the Ten Commandments, we are reminded that it's, it's wrong to take a human life without cause, without just cause. Um, there's been much deliberation in the history of Christianity over what constitutes a just cause, but I think, you know, we all at some point or another, uh, most humans come to some acknowledgement that there's, there's a line somewhere. Uh, there are some uh, who are totally consistent on the issue of the sanctity of life, and so they don't believe in war, they don't believe in the death penalty, they don't believe in anything that results in the intentional ending of a human life. And then there's the whole spectrum. You can, you can carry that back uh, pretty far away from that extreme, if you will. But... Uh, It's wrong to take human life without just cause. Other scriptures teach us that life begins in the womb. This this is, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't really talk about the um, exact point of conception. It talks about the womb. And so when it talks about the womb, it's talking about that whole gestational period from conception to to birth. And that's where life begins. That's a pretty biblical, you know, truth, if you will. Um, That account from the Psalms where David is talking about being knitted together in his mother's womb, and then Jesus meeting his cousin John, uh, both in utero, and John leaping for joy inside his mother's womb, uh, is a great, strong biblical evidence that these are human souls that are relating to each other even in utero. Okay. Then another principle of Scripture that is extremely important here, and we see this in Proverbs 31, the the passage we read, that we as God's people have a responsibility to speak up for those who do not have a voice of their own. This could be for prisoners. It could be for AIDS patients, it could be for any number of cross-sections of society where people are underrepresented, undervalued, etc. We should be those who are looking at society through this ethical lens and saying, those people need a voice. They need someone to stand with them. And this, of course, applies to the unborn. 
that these are human beings and they're accordingly in need of our advocation. They cannot speak up for themselves. And, um, you know, I guess the, the incredible irony is, you know, all, anyone born since 1972 in the United States who is, um, well, any of us are, are the result of, of the choice to be born. Those who did not get to be born didn't have a voice in their faith. And so we look at that and we say there's an entire class of people that are unspoken for in our society and that, and that we have a responsibility as Christians to care about those souls. Okay. Let's take a look at some of the scientific evidence um, starting with conception, at the point of conception, a healthy, normal baby has 23 chromosome pairs, and that constitutes a genetically complete human being. That's a person. That's genetically what distinguishes us from all the other species. And there we are at the point of conception with everything we need for full development. Uh, assuming that we're genetically healthy, right? There are exceptions to that. Um, At three weeks past conception, this is not three weeks of gestation. That's calculated differently. Ask a doctor or somebody if you want all that information. Um, But at three weeks past the point of conception, that baby in her mother's womb has a heartbeat. It can be seen with an ultrasound machine if it's a good enough quality machine, I guess. At five weeks after conception, the baby's eyes are taking shape, their hands have budded, and their legs begin to form. At six weeks, brain waves are detectable from the little bitty head of that baby. The, the neurons of their growing brain cells are working. They're firing. Um, that's just the first six weeks. The, the list goes on. If you want the full list, there's a pretty good list in the book, the, the Mark Middleberg book that we're working through. Um, and uh, Brian, I've got a question for you. All right. So this is our resident PhD microbiologist. I took, a, I took a biology class in college, and the professor's specialty was developmental biology. And she said during the course of, of her section in that class on developmental biology that science still does not really understand specialization, the mechanisms of specialization, like what causes cells to become liver cells or skin cells. Is that still true, largely? Nineteen eighty six. Okay. We know a lot more. Okay. Do we know? Do we know what? what causes those initial cells for, for, for some of them to distinguish themselves from each other and specialize? Is that 
mechanism. Okay. Okay, and so in a, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, in, a, in just a big pie chart, how far along are we in the understanding of specialization? Are we 90% there, 10% there? There's a lot more? Right, crazy, okay. Okay. So, right, we could control that and yeah, we're still quite a bit of learning left to do. And you know, I think as, as science develops and these different areas become better known, um, it is not surprising that there is still much ground to be gained in this area of understanding what causes cells to specialize and, and what causes a baby to develop the way that it does. And, and, and that's one of the reasons that it's so easy to say this is the work of God. This is the kind of stuff that we don't really uh, understand fully. And obviously, it, it's, it's biology, but it's extremely complicated and extremely, uh, what's the word, detailed and, and, and complex. So, suffice to say that scientifically, what's going on in the mother's womb is still somewhat of a sacred mystery. Is that fair to say? Um, this is, if, if humanity has a sacred space, this is it. It's mom. It's this place where life happens, where it starts, where it develops. Um, so the biblical grounds, the scientific evidence, the staggering statistics, and, and I have to confess, I, I've heard people throw these numbers out, and I never believe any numbers when I hear them, so I go and I research them, and I try to look, I try to look at the stats from, you know, what the National Organization of Women as well as a pro-life organization, see how far apart they are. Everybody kind of agrees these statistics are pretty known, so here they are. Roughly 1.3 million babies a year are aborted in the United States. That's plus or minus on one side or the other of 50 million babies over the past 40 years or so. Um, just the annual number is is a greater number of deaths than all of our wars combined. It, it is a staggering number. And, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, but for now, I think... As Americans, we, we all need to know the facts. We need to know the numbers. These statistics are real. These are real 
um, human beings that are being lost every year. Um, Okay. Here's the brutal truth. Every abortion brings a violent end to a human life. There is no humane way to conduct this procedure if you're looking at it from the vantage point of the baby. Um, And the book goes into, the Mark Middleberg book that we talked about earlier, goes into some of the details of these various procedures. And this stuff is horrific. And we're talking really hard to read. And I think because of that, most people don't read the facts. It is so uncomfortable to, to read through the details of what happens in these procedures. It's much easier to just go, ah. And so, I, you know, I'm literally sitting in my office this week, reading, researching, finding credible websites to go through exactly what happens in these procedures. And I'm just overcome. I'm overwhelmed. It's it's graphic. It's horrific. Um, And I'm thinking, you know, so this procedure called the DNC, um, dilation and curatage, is that correct? And it has a, it's a medical procedure that has a, a variety of, of uses. It's, you know, the, the, that procedure can be done for other reasons. Um, but essentially, I'm sitting there reading this description thinking someone almost did this to my kid. Someone almost scraped her off the wall of life and dismembered her and pulled her little pieces out. It's just horrific. And again, it is personal on on both sides of this issue. This is a big deal. But, I mean, I'm just like, I'm, I'm in my office just in front of my computer, literally trying to control myself from just weeping at the thought of both the number and the, the reality of what's happening um, in each of these cases. And essentially, just to put it in very general terms, the farther along in the pregnancy that this decision is made, the, the more horrific and, and incomprehensible the process becomes, uh, if you want my never-so-humble opinion about that. So let's go back to the statistics for a second. Um, 50 million over 40 years, um, you know, what are there, 300 million people in the United States? Let's just say statistically half of those are women. Um, Some smaller number than that were fertile over the past 40 years. Uh, So what percentage of women have, have had this procedure done at some point or another for whatever reason? Also a staggering number, and if you look at it percentage wise, it's, it's some of us, right? It's a, it's a healthy percentage of the American population. This is us. And I, w- I want to say this very, very clearly. There is, there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, There is ample grace and forgiveness in heaven for any of our sins. And I think as a a general principle, the church should, should cue in on this simple idea. The person at fault for these decisions is not the scared, confused, misinformed teenage girl or young woman. Um, can we can we get off of her back for a while? She's got enough problems as it is. This is not a condemnation of a hurting young woman's heart, her mind, her decisions. It's not. Um, Those who profit from the proliferation of this procedure have much blame to bear, right? When, when there are those who are uh, setting themselves up to profit from this as a business, I have a huge ethical problem with that. Um, I, I do not have... Uh, condemnation for uh, the the mom who probably has not been given all the information, um, probably is just wanting a lot of bad feelings to come to an end so she can get on with her life. She's not the problem. Let me read you just a quick excerpt from the book of Colossians as Paul is introducing a letter to a church he says these words about Jesus he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins you are forgiven all of you in Christ are forgiven It's that simple. And there is no condemnation for a past decision made under whatever circumstances you're forgiven. And so what can we as a church do about this issue? First and foremost, to the young women in our midst, we can not look at them disapprovingly when they come to us single and pregnant. Um, and we can, we can be those who extend grace to all people. Um, okay. We cannot judge or condemn these young women who make this decision. We can we can be active members of our society in ways that bring about redemption holistically across the board. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff now. What should our Christian response be to this issue? Um let me just summarize my 
view of the Christian response to this issue to date. Terrible. Um, this, our response to this issue is a great reason why lots and lots of people don't ever want to go to church. Because we are the ones who are out screaming at people all kinds of insulting, derogatory things. Whether it's the woman walking into the clinic or the doctor walking out of the clinic, the Christian response has been terrible. Uh, Now, there's been much good that's done in the midst of that overall general response, but the bad response gets all the press. We need to work on that. And we need to do more of the caring and the, and the provision for these women who find themselves in these circumstances. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this just briefly. We had, a, we had a teenage mom in our church some years ago, and uh, the best setup for, for helping her meet her very practical needs as a single teenage mother, uh, the Catholic Church was all over it. They had an amazing support structure there for her. And it was humbling to see how serious some of them are about this issue and not about attacking people, but actually going out and doing good and providing care in practical ways for women who are in crisis. A plus on, on what we saw firsthand in that circumstance. Um, okay. You know, and I would say on that same note, uh, you know, I, I came across this week a quote from Mother Teresa. And she shows up at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., and she's asked to speak. And she simply says in her frail little voice, and there's nothing frail about that woman's character, but she says in her frail little voice, Stop killing babies and send them all to me. She meant it. She meant it. She would have taken them all. And she would have figured out how to care for them. Um, Amazing woman. And amazingly consistent on this particular issue. So let's take a quick look in our response at Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Um, And I'm going to read, I I think I had to excerpt a little bit of this um, to fit it into the space on your bulletin, so just bear with me. I'll I'll jump that that verse. Well, I'll read it anyway. Okay, here we go. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will, keep, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And just to put that into a couple of words, be gracious. That everything we do related to this issue or any other issue for that matter, be seasoned with grace. That we be the people who understand how to forgive, how to accept, how to respond in grace at all times. Um, I realize that there is an enormous other side to this issue in our culture. I'm not ignoring that. I'm just trying to answer a question. And the question is, why is this such a big deal to Christians? Um, The answer is because the Bible teaches that life is sacred, that we're created in the image of God and every life matters. The science tells us life begins, human life begins at conception. And this whole process is under the same umbrella of sanctity and holiness and deserves to be preserved and protected. But in our response, we must be gracious. And as we talk about ways to address this in our larger society under the first heading of be gracious, I would like to add that we need to, we need to, you remember that little part in the first verse in the Romans passage, live in harmony with one another. We need to be able to find common ground and build from there. When you get, when you get even ardent pro-choice people at the same table with ardent pro-life people, do you know what they all agree on? Have you ever, you ever read any of these uh, minutes from these meetings, these reports? They all universally agree that this country would be better off if we had fewer abortions. Everybody agrees. Um, this is not a pleasant reality. Um, but we can find places where we all agree and say, and say, okay, let's start there where we agree. And let's start at the end of this train in these, in these you know, if you're talking about an elective abortion at the third trimester, can we, can we back off of that and all just kind of go, whoa. I mean, this is, this is you know, this is a viable human being outside the womb. Um, this is no longer a, a choice. Let's just have the baby and find a place for it or something. This is crazy. The, if you read the details of that process, you will want to throw up. So let's start where everybody agrees, where we have lots of common ground, and let's back away from there towards a solution. And, and let's, let's be satisfied in the short term with reducing the total number of abortions that are taking place in our society. And we'll, we'll work graciously and harmoniously towards that goal. Um, you know, it is, it is doubtful that legislation is going to solve this problem. In fact... It's 
Yeah, it usually only makes it worse. So here's what I believe. That God has called his people together to be a source of light and grace and love in the world. And if we want to see fewer abortions taking place, let's bring more hurting people into our midst. Let's minister to their hearts. Let's take care of their practical needs. Let's be actively engaged in our society and in extending the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world. Because at the end of the day, the only place that God has deposited his very presence for the sake of bringing about light and grace and forgiveness and redemption, it's you. You are his people. You are the hope of the world. Because God has deposited himself in us and called us to take that grace out into this hurting world and make a difference. And so, in my view, this is a pro-life activity. Um, What you do tomorrow morning is a pro-life activity. What you do throughout the week in the glo- to, for the glory of God, is adding to the grace value of this world. So go and give and love and bear the image of God on the hearts and souls of others. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. And we confess that there is no clean, easy answer to the problems that beset our culture. And yet, Lord, you call us to love, to shine the light of your grace, to show the heart of God to those around us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us to live in such a way that your grace is known, that your love is felt, that your presence is is pushed out of this place and is extended further into the world for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the redemption of mankind. Lord, that we would carry that light. We thank you for the gift of your son, that you were not afraid to give up the life of your own child, that we might have life eternal. In that truth and in that grace we pray, amen.